My name is David Hershkovitz. I'm the founder of Paper Magazine, and this is Light Culture. Listen, learn, and stay ahead of the curve as I knock heads with cultural disruptors of the past, present, and future. Light Culture is brought to you by Burb, the Vancouver-based cannabis brand. Goddamn, I am hooked on nicotine again, thanks to this fucking flum writes Michelle Hook. I can't even fucking deal. Just when I thought I'd left my crackhead vaping days behind, motherfucker pulls me back in with this thing that literally looks like a whippet canister capped by nipple-shaped teeth. Dubbed by some as the female Hunter Thompson, the drug-guzzling gonzo writer of yore, Michelle is making a name for herself with her brazenly open cultural commentary and field notes from the fringes of underground nightlife and drugs. Luke was an editor at Vice in New York covering electronic music and global nightlife before moving to Los Angeles to write about the counterculture and political autonomy. Welcome, Michelle Luke. Hey, David. So excited to be here, actually. I know. We've been talking about this for a while, right? I know. I've been wanting to kind of hop on this pod because I'm so interested in your background and how it intersects (laughs) with with what I'm doing right now. Yeah, well, you'll have to put me on your podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I just think that as party-loving stoners, we're going to have a lot to talk about. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you, since you're like sort of the ambassador of all of this for me, like I live through you, what's new on the nightlife scene from your perspective? Let's start with LA. Yeah, well, you know, I think that LA is chronically underreported, which is kind of a good thing because it allows the underground to really blossom and thrive beyond the sort of ossifying spotlight of the media, which is what happens in New York. <laughs> So I've been really enjoying watching L.A. sort of blossom since the pandemic in all of these really sort of off the radar, off the grid locations, you know, not just downtown L.A. warehouses, but, you know, parks by the by the river, um, abandoned buildings like there's just a lot of sort of sort of renegade style, you know, off the grid parties that are happening outside of like corporate and institutional nightlife. And I think what's really LA zeitgeist to me is sort of the rise of mushroom parties. (laughs) Yeah. So the rise of the mushroom parties, what's that? Yeah. So I think, you know, obviously a lot of people started experimenting with psychedelics more over the pandemic. And I think it's been really cool to see that sort of inclination carry over into social culture now that we're kind of coming back together. And yeah, I've just been going to a lot of parties that take place in forests or in parks or other sort of like, you know, vibey (laughs) natural locations where people are serving shroom chocolate, shroom tea. And it's always it's always kind of uh, like a wink, wink, you know, if you know, you know, kind of vibe like it's not like it's advertised. This is a mushroom party. But I'm seeing the shift from alcohol towards psychedelics in nightlife and music culture. And I think it makes a lot of sense that L.A. and California is sort of uh, the leading vanguard of this of this shift. 
you know, you've been living there for a while. You talk about shift cannabis, where we kind of started, right? Like the gateway drug into whatever that's people have claimed over the years. But now that's become very commercial, very mainstream. Do you feel that's no longer relevant in terms of the counterculture? I think this is a really potent question, David, and something that I'm really kind of uh, engaging with right now. I, I moved to California in 2017 because I was so interested in what kind of revolution could happen once cannabis became recreational in California. And, you know, this is like, this is my, this is my problem. I'm such a diehard sort of utopian idealist that I'm constantly waiting for the revolution and being disappointed. (laughs) But I think that, you know, what happened was I came to, I came to LA and I started immersing myself into the world of, of weed parties, going to a lot of sort of uh, events that were organized by, you know, up and coming weed brands. And I thought it was really cool, actually, like, you know, how, how you could structure an entire party around cannabis and watch the vibe of the party change as someone who is like i would say an expert (laughs) on partying and and pleasure i think that there is a noticeable difference when a party is stone versus drunk and so i became really obsessed with this and i started throwing my own weed party called weed rave experimenting with like a new model of nightlife, let's say, that is, you know, post-alcohol and more maybe wellness-based. But, you know, in the last one or two years, I found myself increasingly disillusioned and maybe a little bored with the cannabis world. It just seemed so much activity was happening around the commercialization and commodification of the plant. And, you know, on one hand, I'm not going to hate on all of the cool brands that I see people creating, particularly the ones that are like, you know, created by women or people of color. I think like, you know, there is sort of real revolutionary potential happening. But I just kept thinking, do I really want to write about products my whole life? (laughs) Is that what I came to California for? And so I became really sort of drawn to to the psychedelic renaissance and started shifting my, my, my focus a little more into writing about ketamine clinics and mushroom decriminalization. And, you know, I thought it was a really um, engaging field because of the emphasis on mental health and healing. And there's so much more sort of research going into psychedelics that it was cool to have like clinical studies to actually pour over and data. But recently, Mm -hmm. I have found myself reinterested in cannabis. And I think that This is happening for two reasons. I think one, cannabis is in a really interesting place right now. I think that the hype of legalization has definitely kind of calmed down a lot. And now we are sort of seeing things through a much more realistic and and dare I even say bleak perspective. I think that cannabis legalization has been a failure in many regards, especially in California. You see a lot of people going out of business, a lot of farmers struggling to make a profit, a lot of the social equity programs kind of backfiring. And so I think there's been a lot of really like negative press around how California has kind of fucked 
up. And so I think it's become more interesting to kind of wrestle with, okay, what is cannabis then? You know, what what is it becoming? What is its place in the culture? Um, and then secondly, I think if we're going to talk about the really futuristic <laughs> sci-fi side of cannabis, I'm actually working on a story right now about DNA editing, you know, using CRISPR to gene to, to modify the genetics of cannabis and and create these sorts of mutant plants that don't even resemble weed as we know it. We're talking about all the other cannabinoids in weed like CBG and THCV and all these other weird things. You know, they're they're available in such low quantities in the plant that it's not really commercially viable to grow these strains right now. But if you <laughs> bring in a little CRISPR and pack some DNA, you can create plants that only produce THCV, which is the compound which allegedly suppresses your appetite and makes you skinny so you know the future of skinny <laughs> <So fashion>. weed <laughs> i mean that sounds enticing and crazy to me so you know i i'm interested again <laughs> yeah because one of the arguments for its legalization in the first place during the aids epidemic was that it made people eat because people didn't have an appetite they would lose their appetite if they had aids so by mm -hmm. smoking weed they were encourage them to eat. They suddenly were hungry. So now you're saying there's an aspect of this that will make you stop eating. Yeah. I mean, there are hundreds of <laughs> cannabinoids in the plant that we know so little about. I think weed is one of the most complex drugs and most complex highs out of all the drugs and that we haven't given it enough credit, honestly. I think that there's also a spiritual side of it that is often sort of ignored because of how recreational and, and product-based it's become. But I've been hearing about weed ceremonies that are, according to the people who've attended, really transformational. Okay. Just with not ayahuasca, none no, of those. No, just, just weed. <laughs> nice. Well, I'm sure it works myself, but it's nice to hear other people discovering that as well. But is anything off limits at this point in terms of what to be experimented with? And since ketamine is now also mainstream in a way, I just noticed the shop up the block here with a sign outside, ketamine, shrooms, obviously, LSD. So it's all like wide open at this point in terms of experimentation as far as you're concerned. Yeah, I think a lot about do drugs still have their countercultural bite? I think this is a really interesting question to consider in 2022. I think that the story goes as follows. In the 60s and 70s, a lot of the countercultural vanguard kind of appropriated psychedelics from the U.S. military <laughs> industrial complex and really kind of sold everyone this narrative of revolution occurring in the mind and in the consciousness rather than on the political level. You know, you transform the way that you see the world, and that's the key to creating broader social change. But I think that post the pharmaceuticalization of these drugs, along with the social issues that arose in the 80s and 90s around crack and, and the opiate epidemic, I think that, you know, today's generation, particularly 
Gen Z don't see doing drugs as inherently subversive. And this really hit home for me when I traveled around the country in 2020 going to protests. And I was living in a lot of encampments and spending a lot of time with people on the ground. And what I noticed is that everywhere that I went, people were really encouraging sobriety. And they said, please stop drinking, stop doing drugs. This is like a sober space. And sobriety kind of took on this really, this sort of like a spiritual, a spirituality and a sort of gravity. And that's when it kind of clicked for me where I was like, okay, maybe sobriety is the new countercultural logic. (laughs) (laughs) That would be a tough one because, well, you know, there's always been elements of that, the straight edge that was around during the hardcore days when people were dying from ODs and all around. And then there was, you know, the younger people decided to go straight edge. They decided to go vegetarian. They try to adopt a much cleaner lifestyle as in opposition to the mainstream culture as they saw it at that time. So, yeah, so this has been around coming and going all the time, but there's so many fringe cultures right now. There's people who are finding little niches for themselves within all of the different, whether it's the ayahuasca people or the mushroom people, or, you know, there seem to be very separate and having their own ideas about wellness, for example, I know is a subject you've brought up. But you also believe that there's just having fun is also a proper reason for doing something, right? Yeah, I think that often there is this false binary between medical and recreational, where only medical is considered healing or useful, whereas recreational is sort of shunned to the side. And I think that healing can happen in both of these spaces. And that pleasure is a really powerful tool for transformation. And so, you know, as someone who grew up in nightlife and rave culture, And have seen how I think these communities have been experimenting with psychedelics from MDMA to LSD and shrooms and beyond for for generations before sort of the rest of society kind of caught on. And pleasure has always been the defining principle of nightlife, right? And so I think that I get really frustrated sometimes as I'm sort of navigating the psychedelic world, which is a different sort of scene from nightlife. Mm. And a lot of these sort of plant medicine types are so quick to dismiss like, oh, if you're doing ecstasy at a party, then you're not doing it in a healing modality. And I think these sorts of uh, these sorts of binaries are just too black and white. Um, Not everybody in the future is going to be able to afford thousands of dollars to sit in a clinic for six hours with two therapists by their sides, you know, doing MDMA therapy. And I think what's really, really interesting about what will happen in the future, at least from my, (laughs) from my perspective, what I foresee is that with the legalization of all of these psychedelics, we're going to see also a blossoming of the underground because so many people are not going to be able to access these substances legally in the current framework that is about to, you know, about to take place under FDA legalization. Yeah, I know. It's interesting that even as things get the legalization 
moves forward, the underground keeps getting bigger and they're not going away. And we know it's still bigger in California. I'm told 80% of the market is still the legal market and like 20% is the legal market. So, you know, I don't see these things going away and maybe converging at some point. Right. And, you know, I fuck with the underground and you do too. I think it's a really potent and important space. And it's so hard to say that like cannabis or even ketamine has, you know, a subversive bite when it's literally being run by like some vertically integrated (laughs) corporate (laughs) conglomerate or like the clinic is in Beverly Hills and it looks like a really bougie spa. It's like (laughs) drugs are becoming so gentrified that I think the underground is a really potent space to sort of uh, resist some of these other forces. Yeah, I think underground is probably a better term than counterculture at this point. Counterculture, to me, always represented like an opposition to the mainstream culture. So whether it was movies or music that was on the hit parade, but you would still, no one would listen to it. No one would care about that music, those movies. You would have our own world of movies and books and music and things that we cared about as alternative. So it was kind of countered. It was like two kinds of societies. Today, I feel like there's this maybe outlaw culture is another way of looking at this. If you re- look around today, what's becoming a counterculture is like the world of tattoos, sexuality, video games, graffiti, skateboarders, all these groups that were once considered outlaws by nature are now mainstreaming as well, but right. still with their own little niches, separate. So I, I feel they represent this idea of the outlaw culture moving into the mainstream is something that another way of looking at it as opposed to counterculture, because the counterculture keeps on putting everything in the context of the 60s, 70s, the politics and everything that happened back then, whereas it's just a different period now. It's just a different time. I know. And I think it's really difficult for me to locate a genuine sense of subversion in all of these subcultures. Um, It's so hard to feel like there is an effective resistance to what we're living under right now. And I think that it's therefore really easy to slip into this sort of stance of edgelord nihilism that we see really trending in the discourse right now. What is that? What is edgelord nihilism? Well, I just think that there's a lot of sort of reactionism happening in the underground right now with people sort of uh, becoming very nihilistic and very trolly and absurdist and sort of pretending to be into God as an ironic stance, going trad. (laughs) That's sort of like the dominant vibe of the underground right now, which is concerning to me. And I don't think everyone feels that way, but that's just kind of what's happening in in this moment in the culture. But I think myself and select others that I consider allies are on the same side of genuinely trying to find a sense of hope and optimism amongst all of this bleakness. It's hard though. Like I said, like, how do you even resist something that immediately annihilates and and consumes every form of resistance? (laughs) Yeah. Do you mean the American capitalistic system? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, I'm going to, in a few weeks, I'm going to this like super off the grid renegade style 
festival rave in the woods called Autonomous Mutant Fest. And it is so, so off the grid that it took me 15 years of reporting on nightlife to even hear about it. <laughs> it's been going on all those years? It has. And where is it? Is it allowed of, to say? It's it's always moving around. It's always on like a public land, some kind of forest on the West Coast. They haven't announced it yet. But it's been described to me as one of the last great secrets of, of the underground and a place where you can actually find genuine freedom. Psychedelics are obviously a huge part of it. And what's kind of cool is, you know, a lot of eco-terrorists, eco-punks um, <laughs> also come here. And it's a place for electronic music. I think often hippies are very averse to rave. There's sort of this old <laughs> uh, battle between hippies and ravers. But this is actually something that's very uh, techno-positive. So I'm excited for that. And I'll report back if I manage to find a genuine sense of subversion still oh, <laughs> living yeah, in the forest. <laughs> And what about, because you're also global and you go travel and check out the scenes in other parts of the world. Is it very different? Well, you know, with regards to our common substance of choice, weed, what's been really cool to me is going back to Asia. I'm from, I'm from Southeast Asia, Singapore, and seeing cannabis sort of being reclaimed by Asia via countries like Thailand that just legalized cannabis. And the last time I was back in Singapore, you know, Singapore has one of the strictest drug laws in the world, right? Like you literally get put on death row for, for smuggling drugs into the country. But <laughs> of course, I managed to sniff out some underground raves where I met <laughs> stoners who were smoking some of the most beautiful crystalline nugs I've ever seen in that side of the world. And I asked them, I was like, where are you getting this bud? Is it from California? And they were like, <laughs> no, this is the best sativas from Thailand. So Thailand is becoming the hub of weed in Asia. And I think it's really cool for me to remember that actually cannabis comes from Asia and that it's been sort of stigmatized so heavily because of the war on drugs in America importing these sorts of cultural beliefs back to Asia. But if you really think about the history of it, you know, there are villages in Thailand where everything is made out of hemp and they're boiling soups with weed. And there's this whole sort of really indigenous, all these indigenous practices around cannabis that I'm really excited to kind of delve into more now that the stigma is lifting. But it's still dangerous, right? They, these the people can be caught and... Oh, yeah. In Singapore, it's yeah. like... It's terrifying. But in Thailand, I think that it's it's much looser. It's still dangerous to get caught, but there are festivals in Thailand that are putting weed into their food now mm -hmm. <laughs> under the radar and things like that. So, Well, yeah. there was a time when the Thai sticks were the premier bud in New York because in the 90s, before the strains were common and people were just basically smoking whatever they can get their hands on that had seeds and wasn't really that good. But then these sticks, what they call Thai sticks, came in and they were like the most potent weed that anybody had ever had. And somehow it's, I don't know why it stopped, but I never see it anymore. But Thailand does have this history of having really great weed. Yeah, I remember reading that Thai sticks were selling for more than Cuban cigars at one point. 
<laughs> yeah, why not? More than tulips in Amsterdam. You know more about your experiences <laughs> with weed back in the day in New York nightlife. Was it like really commonplace <laughs> at the clubs that you were going to? You know, it went through various cycles because over the years it changed so that there was a time, early 80s, late 70s, when it was pretty open. Everyone was smoking. You could sit in a cab. You could smoke in a cab because when smoking was legal, basically. So you smoked in the movie. You went to, to watch the movie and you'd smoke a joint while you were sitting there and nobody really cared very much about it. But then when the war on drugs kicked in, it became very different and the city changed and Giuliani and all those people came out. We started trying to close the clubs, using, calling the clubs drug dens and using that because it was a political thing, obviously. But yeah, so we went through there various phases where it was legal. You could sit and smoke wherever you want outside, like what's happening today in New York, basically, where you could sit outdoors and the cafe and smoke a joint if you wanted. Nobody would really care, but now it's better. But there was that horrible, the late 80s, the Reagan, just say no years when the clampdown came. Interesting. Yeah, I'm really excited for for New York to start opening real weed lounges and weed clubs. Yeah, well, that could be interesting. It's just, to, again, to see what is that going to be like? What is the environment going to be? Is it going to be a man cave <laughs> uh, kind of vibe and it's harder for women to feel comfortable I've been told in some of the spaces that are already exist you know right I find that a lot of the turnoff about cannabis culture has been purely on an aesthetic level for yeah. me <laughs> But what's cool is that New York is sort of leading the vanguard of creating social spaces around weed right now. Like LA is so embarrassingly behind. We had like one weed restaurant, the Lowell's Cafe that Mm -hmm. opened right before the pandemic. And that was kind of cool. Like even aesthetically, it looked like a lush garden and you would walk in and there would be tables of moms having brunch (laughs) next to like soccer teams, you know, like it was literally just so surreal in a way to walk into a West Hollywood bougie brunch restaurant where there are weed sommeliers coming out and asking (laughs) you how you want to pair your drink with your joint. And it was so cool. But then, of course, the pandemic hit. And then there was like some weird scandal. This is like some tea for you, David. But Mm. there was like a funny scandal where some girl said she got herpes from sharing bongs at this cafe. And it was like this... It was like this, this minor drama that kind of happened. But, um, but you know, that all kind of just disappeared with the sands of COVID. And now I guess like there are a bunch of new lounges in the works. Like Woody Harrelson has some kind of lounge coming up called The Woods that I'm kind of interested in. Well, isn't that a dispensary? It's a dispensary, but there's going to be a consumption area as well. Yeah, I think it's inevitable. Right. But I think that L.A. has been really slow because of the age old California story of like overregulation. But New York has been really quick on the uptake to be like, nope, we need to create spaces for people to smoke weed socially because, you know, nobody wants to do it in their shoebox apartment. So- yeah, exactly. And, and the regulation that allows people to smoke weed anywhere you can smoke a cigarette in New York, which is different from California, I'm told, because technically you're not really allowed to smoke in the street 
in LA or California, but you are in New York now. So for the people who come here from California, they feel that it's even more free here, more open than it is there. Right. And, you know, when we talk about aesthetics, I'm really interested in the shift in nightlife culture from the sort of, I think that, you know, the warehouse, post-industrial, very like abject, very sort of tough and metallic kind of vibe that existed the Blade Runner sense of futurism that existed in the 80s and 90s was really fueled by like synthetic chemicals and drugs and the kind of environments that you want to be in when you're on those substances. And now that we're kind of moving into a plant-based drug diet here in California and in New York, maybe, um, although New York is always a little bit synthetic, always, there's also, I think, going to be a shift in, in the aesthetics of nightlife. Like when you're on shrooms or even just really stoned, you don't necessarily want to be in a concrete box with, with really intense strobe lights, you know? Like a friend of mine was just in Detroit last weekend for Movement Festival, which is sort of like the biggest gathering of electronic heads in the country every year. And she was talking about an acid party called no way back that is basically just a warm cocoon of fabrics no lights no strobes just darkness for fucking 20 hours you know mm. and it's just one of the most psychedelic environments that you can imagine so i think like correspondingly a lot of the parties that i've been going to that serve mushrooms have a very sort of uh, eco-futurist aesthetic and that's the future that i want to conceive and live in in the future when i'm partying <laughs> during the sort of apocalypse <laughs> okay okay the in new york or at least back in the, the early days of rave when they would do these big parties they would also have separate rooms the chill out room. So you would go into a room which had different kind of music, different lighting, maybe mattresses just for people to lay down and not have to be like on all the time. And mm. maybe that's something. But it's true that it takes a long time for this whole design aspect of a culture to, to kick in. And even especially with cannabis, with its all its legacy of you know the 60s iconography that goes with it that I don't think we've found a place yet, a new place for what that would look like. Yeah. I feel, like, you know, mm -hmm. but like, you know how there was a design in all those fluid objects from mm -hmm. those years of the acid years. I feel like it, that's going to come back in design and also colors that people would reject normally. But now when they're under the influence, everything looks different and hopefully better. I know you're totally. involved. You're a dresser. You go, that's part of what you do when you go out into your world. What is that all about? How important is it to, you're not just wearing like an observer, the difference between a journalist who from the New York Times who would go and like with their notebook stand around in a suit and tie writing an article versus you going into one of these places? Yeah, you know, I think that my work has always been really informed by the viscerality of my experiences and 
people who are maybe more traditional might think that this invalidates the work because there's so little separation between the personal and the public for me. Like my life is my work and vice versa. But to me, I think it actually makes me more trustworthy. The fact that I can speak about my experiences because I have been able to process them through my body. And I've really put myself (laughs) at the forefront of these cultures in a really sort of immersive level and experienced addiction, experienced what it means to recover from addiction personally, you know, experience what it's like to grow up in a really conservative society where there's been so much stigma around both fields that I engage with, both nightlife and drugs. And a lot of the work that I've been doing has been to sort of free myself from the the strictures of, 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 of all the things that I've been told are bad and wrong about what I have found to be extremely liberating. So I don't know. I guess I I think that journalism is changing. I think that the myth of objectivity is finally being brought to the forefront, you know, and it's important to just really um, highlight your subjectivity and, and personal experience. This kind of makes the narrative even stronger and relatable, I feel. And of course, I feel like partying has been my primary lens for delving into the zeitgeist because it's where all of the most avant-garde ideas are hitting first. (laughs) The conversations that I pick up in the smoking room of a club or outside of a rave are often exactly what's going to hit the mainstream in like two or three years. You know, this is where the most future thinking avant-garde people are coming to congregate. It's where ideas are mingling. And just by standing on the dance floor and observing and listening to what people are talking about, I think you can get such a strong grasp of what's happening in the culture. And also by listening and to Michelle and reading everything she writes, I'm a big fan. Thank you so much, Michelle Luke, for being on Light Culture today. Thank you, David. Can't wait to <laughs> hang out with you again. <laughs> You've been listening to Light Culture. You can find us at shopburb.com, Light Culture, or at Light Culture Podcast. Thanks again to Burb. You can follow them at shopburb on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to and review the show. If you would like to get in touch, reach out to me directly at David Reporting. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.